Hello, Russell here. I'm excited to share some of my conversation with Tristan Harris. Tristan Harris is president and co-founder of the Center for for Humane Technology. His work on the attention economy started in 2013 when he created a side slide deck with Google that went viral, warning about the technology industry's arms race to capture human attention and the moral responsibility of companies to uh, you know are restructuring society inadvertently with their with their actions and with the sort of warped excellence of their products rolling stone magazine named tristan one of 25 people shaping the world you've got to have a listen to his podcast your undivided attention that's the one thing he asked us to do so after you listen to this please listen to that you can listen to more episodes of under the skin on luminary a subscription podcast network and tristan will tell you that if you're not paying for the product you are the product original shows from your favorite creators you can get a subscription for as little as $2.99 a month with their annual plan plus a seven day free trial to get yourself started visit luminarypodcast.com to start your free trial now it's not available in all markets and it is subject to uh, local currency terms apply so let's listen to Tristan Harris now. This is a lovely extract towards the end of our conversation where we're talking about the sort of spiritual connotations of our, um, like, what is it that's missing in us? That's why I asked Tristan that we're so vulnerable to this technology. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. What do you feel is absent in us that means we are so susceptible to the evidently rather Machiavellian and brilliant techniques necessarily uh, employed by these tech companies? What are we missing? What do we want? Why is there this vacancy that is so uh, efficiently filled by these uh, facilities? This is actually interesting when you connect the conversation around language uh, that we were just having with this thing that you're pointing to, which is, I could easily say the answer to the question you just asked is connection. But notice how seemingly inadequate that feels at describing, you say, oh, there's a lack of connection. What, what does that really mean? Lack of connection to what? You could say lack of connection to self, lack of connection to nature, lack of connection to a deep, fulfilling and lasting um, relationship to, to being in this world. But that lack is at the core of us um, as Buddhism and others uh, teach forever. And we're always trying to find something to fill it. I, I want to actually say something because I think that some people walk away from the film, The Social Dilemma, with the false impression that we're saying, this is inevitable and we can't escape because our paleolithic, you know, the line they use in the film is our paleolithic emotions are baked in the Stone Age, right? And uh, they're not changing. You know, you, you're not going to change the fact that your mind is attracted to certain kind of social validation or approval or social reciprocity or, um, you know, novelty seeking, variable rewards. Those are all things built into us, just like our minds and bodies are attracted to salt, sugar and fat. The question is, what is the cultural software we're going to layer on top of that? I think some people watching the film, The Social Dilemma, when we talk about, oh, it's preying on our deepest weaknesses, they, they assume that therefore we're, you know, we just have to surrender to this technology or there's no escaping it. The premise is not that, it's that to understand how we get out of it, we have to acknowledge the vulnerabilities that are being uh, influenced and manipulated. So let's, let's make it concrete for people. Um, one of my favorite examples of this, because uh, we all experience it if you're on social media, if you post a photo or imagine, you know, your teenage daughter posts a photo. Um, and they get a hundred comments on that photo. 
and 99 of those comments are positive. Just simple positive uh, comments. But one of them is negative and nasty. If your mind was neutral, you would be absorbing a 99 to 1 ratio of positivity to negativity. But that's not how our mind works, is it, right? Where does your attention go if there's 99 positive comments and one negative? You go to the negative. And not just kids do that, we all do that. And then do you think if I turn off the phone, am I the only one? Do I, do I immediately leap to the next thing? Or does my attention loop back on the negative comments, right? And essentially, the... Our brain already has a negativity bias. If you actually, um, you know, uh, in studying kind of literature on mindfulness and things like this, you know, our mind will generally focus more on the negative than on the positive. But when you have a self-reinforcing system that shows us more of the negative because we click on it more, and then there's a self-reinforcing cycle where we give people that more. I think at the core of the tech industry is in part a philosophical mistake. And the mistake is, I, if I, if I sometimes joke like, if we were to write a book about this, we might say, the, head, the title would be The Click, uh, and then the head subtitle would be The Mistake That Turned the World Upside Down. Because the idea that what we click is what we want, the phenomenology of like what would lead us to make that little click with our finger, just like what's actually inside of our nervous system that needs to get activated by a thresholding system to get that click to happen? Well, if it getting us at our click or our attention, according to that logic, when you drive down the, you know, the 101 or the 5 freeway in California, and everyone's attention is looking at the car crash because when they drive by that area, everyone looks at the car crash. According to the logic of Facebook and Google, the world wants car crashes. That's what they deepest desire. They say they don't want it, but if you just look at their, you know, revealed preferences and their behavior, they want the car crashes. So they can, and, and this is the logic that has created these self-reinforcing degenerate loops of more polarization, more negativity. And uh, there's actually just a report out a week ago about the unique negativity of the U.S.-based news media, which is even more negative than even abroad. Um, and I think, again, our news publishers, we, we don't talk about this often, but our news publishers uh, and journalists have been caught in this loop where even good faith journalists who want to do the right thing are playing in the same race to the bottom of the brainstem. And you've seen mainstream and, and really respected publications fall into this trap where they measure their journalists based on Hey, were you in the top 10 most read stories? Did you get clicked on the most? How many shares did you get? And so social media, I think in a subtle way, has really terraformed not just our minds and our mental health and our connection to, to you know, ourselves, but also terraformed the institutions and the, and the fundamental organs that make up a life support system for a society, including the fourth estate and journalism. And it's really critical we talk about that because when we say technology has been eroding democracy, we have to include the ways that it's been eroding the fourth estate. Wow, that's really cool. Thank you. When you talk about one in there, Tristan, and uh, the, you know, and attraction, what we're attracted to, and you spoke briefly about the nature of connection, and you sort of reeled off probably what the actual answers are: connection to self, connection to others, connection to nature. Those probably are the things that are sort of most lacking. I wonder, given the nature of the obstacles you faced in the two positions you've been in—one as an insider trying to water from within, and now as a sort of a um, a kind of somewhat benign not necessarily adversarial critic and uh reformist of the industry how how do you imagine that something with such concentrated power underwritten by an economic system that seems insurmountable 
could ever be changed without some equally potent and, and likely concentrated form of oppositional power? Well, I'm not naive to the fact that this is not just going to change with goodwill. Um, I will say most recently, um, the, you know, the actions by the Federal Trade Commission and the 48, I think, attorney generals that are filing as part of a massive antitrust case against Facebook that has emerged, I think, uh, just recently in the last week or two. Um, that is a huge source of, you know, uh, progression on how do we actually make these systems work for the people and make sure we break up concentrated power so that uh, you cannot have these sort of self-absorbing systems that just like the blob, every time you punch them, they just get bigger and stronger, right? And I feel like what people need to get about this is the amount of power that they have is self-reinforcing. Every time they succeed in sort of defeating your free will, right, and getting you to spend more time on these things because you think, hey, I'm going to flick my finger one more time because I've already flicked, you know, for the last 10 minutes, but just one more time and flick one more time, then I'm out. And then you find yourself going in again, and it's like, hey, what happened there? Should I just have had more self-control? Or behind the slab of glass of, computer, of smartphone screen, there's a supercomputer pointed at my brain that has the avatar predictive model voodoo doll of me. And it literally is doing a trillion calculations of the perfect thing to show me. And every time it succeeds in playing chess against my mind and getting me to see the next thing, what happened? It didn't just get more of my time. It actually made more money. Right? So the whole supercomputer infrastructure that successfully won that chess game against my prefrontal cortex and against my free will sort of system, uh, if it exists, that money goes into Google or Facebook's coffers. That money gets reinvested into a bigger supercomputer that can see even more moves ahead in the chessboard, that can predict better and better each time how to out-manipulate, how to outsmart us, et cetera. And, and so I think we need to name, I think this is what you're getting at, that this is a new species of concentrated power. Um, as Shoshana Zuboff, the author of Surveillance Capitalism, says in the film, these are the richest and wealthiest corporations in human history. And we face ourselves in a bind. I don't want to be too depressing about this because I know as we're walking through this, some people can feel really powerless. And I want to make sure we, you know, this is not easy, but I, I want to make sure we're, we are naming how difficult it is. If you took out the top five tech companies from the stock market, would you have the economic growth that we've seen uh, in the last you know, year to two years? A lot of the economic growth is coming from the top five tech companies. And if you took out surveillance capitalism, if you took out this business model and said, we cannot do it, it's very similar to taking out uh, oil from the economy or in the 1800s, taking out slavery from essentially a free, creating a free source of labor for the entire economic system. Uh, one of my favorite books is actually Bury the Chains by um, British author Adam Hochschild, who talks about the British abolition of slavery and how they had to let, the British empire had to let go of 2% of their GDP every year for about 60 years to decouple their economy from slavery. Um, they could not do it with economic growth. And I think that's one of the core tensions is, is economic growth uh, in conflict with the changes that we do need to make? It seems that it is, doesn't it? And that as the people that were reluctant to end slavery ultimately yielded, but I mean, the title of that book suggests that there's an awareness that slavery does exist in various um, less obvious, more covert forms. It's likely that without a kind of radicalism, that as is the case with environmental concern, 
and would perhaps be the case in the issue that we're discussing, that unless there is a kind of, I feel like a robust and radical approach with meaningful power behind it, what we will get is a, a kind of um, is uh, you know, like reform that is uh, I- insufficient and gestural rather than meaningful. Well, if you are enjoying this conversation, please join me now over at Luminary for the rest of our discussion and for all the latest episodes of Under the Skin. Go to luminarypodcast.com to start your free trial. Remember, it can be as little as $2.99 a month for a subscription to some fantastic content I'm really proud of, only from Luminary. See you there.